We've been going through, as you know, the solas of the Reformation, some uh, key uh, truths that really flowed from the time of the Reformation, and not just the Reformation itself as, as from history, but there are biblical truths that we've been focusing upon that are pertinent for all Christians, these solas of the Reformation. And I told you that if you have a hard time uh, remembering these, you might think of them uh, through the metaphor of a building, um, these five solas that we've been looking at. Uh, sola Scriptura, which we saw a few Sundays ago, is really the foundation of that building. Without the foundation of Sola Scriptura or Scripture alone, then the building crumbles, right? The building crumbles. Scripture alone. Scripture is the ultimate and final authority in all matters of faith and practice for us as believers. Uh, then, taking this illustration of a building further, there are three pillars that stand firmly upon this foundation. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. And Sola Fide, that we saw last night, through faith alone. Those are the pillars that stand upon this foundation of the Scriptures. But all of this, all of these truths and themes that arose from the Reformation and were crystallized later on, are incomplete without the overarching, all-encompassing roof or, or great pinnacle that is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says that whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. All of life, all that we do, all that we will do in life, listen, beloved, is to be done for the supreme purpose of bringing glory to God. And during the Reformation, this was especially something that was emphasized. We tend to draw distinctions in today's day and age between the religious and the secular, but the Reformers viewed all of church life, all of family life, your role as a husband, your role as a wife, your particular place in life as a single person, your role as a grandparent, your role as a youth or as a child sitting in here, all of life, your vocation, your work, your education, all that you possess, all that you pursue, all of your aspirations are to be done for the supreme Purpose, the grand purpose of the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Everything is to be done for this glory, for, for the glory of God. And why is this? It is because God is worthy of all glory by virtue of who He is. He is inherently glorious. No one adds anything or subtracts anything from God's majesty who He is. Now, often we speak of God's glory, but don't quite understand what we mean by it, right? But to speak of God's glory is to speak of, of His attributes, of His character, of, of those qualities that are a part of His nature. And to see this, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. This is right after the sinful worship of the golden calf by the Israelites. In Exodus 33, and in response to that, as you know, uh, Moses was an instrument of God's discipline upon the Israelites, and he goes after them and even uh, punishes them, Moses does, for their rebellion of worshiping the golden calf as a representation of God. And also, God tells Moses that he will not go with the people lest he destroy them in light of their idolatry. And Moses would not have it. Je uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 3 
God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate or stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. So God is saying, I'm not going to go with you in light of the idolatry of the people, Moses. And Moses is not going to have that. He knows that if God doesn't go with the people, he is not, they, um, uh, they have missed, the people have, their, um, their ability to be distinguished from the nations around them. What makes them unique is not their inherent worth, but the glory of God with them, right? So Moses, said in, Moses says in Exodus 33 and verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I might know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And God says in verse 14, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says in verse 15, And he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Moses wants God to reveal himself to, to Moses in a deeper and greater way because Moses cherishes Yahweh, God, the one true God, and he wants him to be with the people. And look at chapter 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said to him, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the, on the rock. So he's going to carve out a place for Moses to, to sit there, cuddled in the, in the, in the um, cleft of the rock, where he can see God's hind parts. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it shall come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will p- put you in the cleft of the rock, and cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And God is going to show Moses, or give him a glimpse of his glory. Look at chapter 34 and verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh God, his personal name that points to his self-sufficiency, self-existence, to the fact that he's a faithful covenant keeping God. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave his the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And notice Moses' response to the glory of God as seen in his name, known in his name and his attributes Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship, and worship. To speak of God's glory, beloved, is to speak of God's moral perfection on the one hand, but also of his otherness, of, his, of the fact that there's no one who compares to him, the fact that he is the incomparable one, he is the glorious one, and no one matches up to God. John Piper has defined the glory of God this way. It is the going public of His holiness. 
so that people might see something of his majesty. See, often in the Bible, he's piggybacking off of the observations in Scripture that often in the Bible, God's presence is felt and, and seen and manifested in radiant, blinding light. The closest thing to us is the, is the, 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 the uh, uh, blinding sun that we can't even look upon. And His glory is accompanied by fire and thunder and lightning and, and shaking so that the people, such as the Israelites, are awestruck, unable to look upon God for fear that they might be destroyed. So there's God's inherent glory. He is in Himself glorious. But there is also this thing called ascribed glory. That is, His creation and His creatures, listen to me, every single one of us that are sitting in here, older and younger, you little tykes who are in here, God has created Creatures, all creatures, you and I, for the supreme purpose of bringing glory to Him. Bringing glory to Him. In fact, in Scripture, God's zeal for His creatures to give Him glory is evident. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 17, God says concerning Pharaoh, I will get my glory from Pharaoh. And when you think about the plagues upon the Egyptians in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, those plagues were a manifestation of God's power, not just to, to bring out or, or um, free His people from bondage of the, under the Egyptians, but it was ultimately for the supreme purpose of showing the glory of God. That God was greater than any of the Egyptian gods that they worshipped. So He said, I will get my glory from Pharaoh. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God is zealous and jealous for His glory. God wants your exclusive devotion as His creature. And He demands it and He requires it and He is worthy of it. Amen? Worthy of it. And there are consequences upon those who don't live for the glory of God, who try to exalt themselves. Think about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 34, the, the king of Babylon who is walking on the, on the roof one day and he's looking out at the great kingdom of Babylon and he's, he's saying, look at all that I've done. Oh, what a great kingdom. And you know what God does to him? He rebukes him and turns him into an animal. To, into a cattle, to be chewing food out, grass out with the rest of the cattle. As a reminder to King Nebuchadnezzar that God Himself is in charge and He's sovereign over all things and not Nebuchadnezzar. And even Nebuchadnezzar's rule during that time was an act of God's doing by God's choice. Not because Nebuchadnezzar was a great guy. The lesson was clear. You need to praise God and Nebuchadnezzar did. When he was turned back into a man, he praises God. Remember Herod in Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 24? He is giving a, a speech to the people, and the people start to cry out, the voice of a God and not a man. Remember what happened to Herod? God struck him dead. He struck him dead. Why? Because he was robbing God of his glory. What is the lesson? Anyone who doesn't live for the glory of God, for, but for self-exaltation, and in so doing robs God of His glory, will pay the price, beloved. Will pay the price. We were created for the glory of God. 
And it is not like God has not made Himself known to us abundantly in everything that we see, right? To show forth the fact that He deserves all glory. Listen to uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. In other words, God's glory is, is seen in His creation. It's evident in everything that we see. Listen to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Wonderful psalm. One of my favorites. Speaking of God's creation. But notice what God's creation is meant to to point to. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And by the heavens, it means the whole universe, right? Not just where we can look up and see the skies if we walk outside. All of the universe. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful seize. Listen to this. Are you brought to humility when you look and you consider the universe? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. Yet put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. The psalmist is praising God. And in light of that, he's wondering, how could it be that you choose man as the crown of your creation? We don't deserve any of this. And yet you have given us this wonderful stewardship of your creation. All of creation, beloved, declares the glory of God. Think of the heavens and the, the planets and, the, and the, the stars and all of that and its vastness and greatness and beauty. All of those things are public preachers of God's existence and of His glory. Every single day they proclaim to us, glorious is God. Glorious is He. Man is without excuse. For all we need to do is look around to behold the majesty and the greatness of God, right? And yet, I want to submit to you that that is the fundamental root problem of mankind. Man does not acknowledge God, but lives to exalt himself. That is our root problem, beloved. And this is so made abundantly clear to us in Romans chapter 1. I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 1. Powerful passage of Scripture. Paul is going to expound upon the great gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. But first, he needs to lay down the groundwork and help people and all of us understand that all creatures are under the present wrath of God. But the question is, why? Why is everyone under the present wrath of God? Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, i.e. by their conscience. But also, notice, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God 
or glorify Him as God or give thanks. See, here's the ultimate problem, isn't it? Man beholds the beauty and the majesty of God in creation. God has made it evident to all of us. And even though we see all of these things and we know in the existence of God, we deny it and we pretend that we're atheists. But the very fact that we're fighting against the existence of God says and gives credence to the fact that we are suppressing the truth that there is a God. Otherwise, we wouldn't fight so hard to deny the existence of God, right? And not only that, but the fact that He's majestic. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God, glorify Him as God, or give thanks. But notice, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. God's existence and His glory, beloved, is seen in creation. It's abundantly clear But the root problem of man is that he doesn't acknowledge God, his existence, or his majesty as seen in his creation. So what does God do? Three different times in this passage in Romans 1, we're told that God, in light of the fact that man does not acknowledge God as creator, or give him praise for his creation and for who he is, God gives men over. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. There is your your problem. Men don't acknowledge God. Men don't praise God, which is what they were, they were created to do. And God gives man over. All sin, mark it. All sin and manifestations of sin result from man's failure to give God the glory that he's worthy of. God gives man over to his, the consequences of turning away from him. By contrast, beloved, listen. This is why Jesus came, didn't he? Jesus came to restore our ability to live for the glory of God. And how did he do that? By putting forth his glorious son to die on the cross for sinners like you and I. That by trusting in Him as Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven, we can be restored to a right relationship with our Creator, and thus live for the glory of God. We often talk about salvation as, I'm thankful that God has saved me so that I don't have to go to hell. And we should be thankful for that, and we should praise God for that. But do you understand that the ultimate purpose for even your redemption, God buying you out of slavery to sin... And saving you in His Son is so that you would give God glory in the present life and forever. That's why you exist and you will exist forever and ever and ever. God has saved you and I in order that we would give Him glory. That's the ultimate purpose of our salvation. As our brother read earlier from Ephesians chapter 1. All God's doing in our redemption from before the foundation of the world is to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's why we have been saved. Since this is the case, I want to ask this question. What are some ways that we glorify God then, very practically on this earth? 
You know, when we talk about the glory of God and we throw around lingo such as, uh, you know, I want to glorify God with my life. I think that we often use that terminology, but we don't stop and consider what glorifying God actually looks like, right? What it actually looks like very practically. What does this mean very practically in our everyday lives? To give God glory. And before we go through some of these, I want to remind you, this is a, a personal endeavor to glorify God. Each of us are accountable to God for the way that we live our lives. But also, this is, this is an endeavor of your whole family. You husbands are to be leading your families into glorifying God as a family. And the buck stops with you men to be leading your families in that direction. And you wives as well, supporting your husbands. You who are single, you're called to live for the glory of God. You who are grandparents, you're called to live for the glory of God. And you're called to support that families would, would, would live out their roles so that they would live for the glory of God as well. So this is a personal family and, might I say this, church endeavor. As a church, we are called to be on this earth and, and conduct ourselves in a certain way as a community of believers that we might put the gospel on display as we've been learning from the book of Titus, right? So I want you to think about, about these on a personal, family, and church family level, okay? So how do we, what are some ways that we glorify God very practically? Let me give you some of these. First of all, we, we glorify God by worshiping Him. By worshiping Him. should go without saying... He who has, who has created us for the purpose of glorifying Him, who has saved us for that purpose, um, deserves all of our adoration and, and all of our praise, right? Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, concluding three great chapters of rehearsing the great work of God in redemption, he says this in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, Now to Him, meaning God, who is able to do. And then he starts piling up words on top of God's work of salvation. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's point is, everything that God has done, salvation itself, is for the purpose of glorifying God, glorifying the work that He has done. In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, Peter, writing to these believers, talks about their privileged position, their privileged standing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and he says this, You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That is who you are, regardless of anything that you do. And notice the purpose for God's calling. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as a... See, beloved is a biblical word. I can throw that around in the pulpit, right? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And listen to this. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I believe that day of visitation refers to the day when an unbeliever becomes a Christian and they glorify God because of your Christian witness before them. Now being a part of the family of God. 
It's for the purpose of giving glory to God, of bringing worship to Him. We were created for worship and saved that we might fulfill that grand purpose. I love what John Piper says, that mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. See, the fall, what it brought about was a misplaced worship beginning with Adam and Eve. We're in a position to have wholehearted devotion to the Lord, but they committed mutiny against God. And then in practice, they led the the rest of creation into now an ongoing um, uh, downward spiral of people putting themselves in the throne of God in their practice, even though we could never do that. That is what the fall brought about. It was mutiny against the one who deserves all worship. And you know why we share the gospel? Think about this. The reason why we share the gospel, yes, is so that out of love for sinners, that they would be rescued from hell, they would be uh, reconciled to God. But the reason why we share the gospel as well, beloved, is because we want to see people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and thus add worshipers to heaven someday. Right? That's why we share the gospel. Now, is worship just a Sunday morning thing? No. All of life is worship, right? All of life is worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, on the heels of God's saving work, Paul says to the Roman believers, he says, that we are to be uh, living sacrifices. Now that God has saved you, you are to to function or, or live your life as a sacrifice, no longer living for yourself, but living for God who has saved you in Christ Jesus. So all of life is to be lived as worship to the Lord. But we also worship the Lord in our words, don't we? Listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Notice He's worthy of it. Praise Him with your lips. Hopefully you did that earlier in song. Praise Him with your lips because He's worthy. Not because everything is so honky-dory in your life, right? Because He's worthy. Bring an offering and come to Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. See, He's worthy. This is why we sing, beloved. We sing because He has been gracious to us, hasn't He? He's been so gracious to us. Psalm 101, verse 1, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Yahweh, I will sing praises. His loving kindness is His steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping faithfulness to us. His love to us. He will keep His promises. He's a just God. See, people who love God love to sing praises to God, right? But you know what hinders singing and song? Sin. Sin hinders worship in song, doesn't it? David in Psalm 51 verse 14, reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba and and confessing his sin in Psalm 51. Listen to what he says concerning his sin and what it kept him from doing and what he's asking God to renew in him again. He says in Psalm 51 verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David is saying, essentially, Lord, living in unrepentant sin, what it has done is that it has shut my mouth from singing praises to you exuberantly and joyfully. See, unrepentant sin hinders praises to God, right? But confession reopens our hearts and our lips to sing praises to God, turning from our sin 
And being renewed in the forgiveness that God gives in Christ Jesus opens our lips, beloved, once again to singing praises to Him, right? You've been there. I've been there. It's time for confession, right? For some of us. Maybe part of the reason why you don't worship in song is because of the fact that you're living and coddling unrepentant sin in your life. Worship is where everything is headed. Do you understand? Forever and ever we will worship. We get a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. Listen to this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's what heaven's going to be like. And right here on earth, even in our main corporate worship services, the main event of the week on Sunday mornings, the reason why this is the main event is because, beloved, in a, in a very focused corporate way, uh, in the main event of the week, we come together to praise God who has been so good to us, right? And that's what's going to be happening forever and ever. And so all of life is worship, and this is where everything is headed. And so you need to ask yourself, if I don't love to worship God, even corporately in my, the singing of songs, why is it? Why is this boring to me? What is going on in my heart that I'm not driven to, to praise the Lord in light of His grace in Christ Jesus? In light of the fact that He's forgiven me of so much. In light of the fact that He's good to me every single day. In light of the fact that even though I don't walk in faithfulness as I should, He still forgives me every single day based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Why is it that I'm bored at worshiping the Lord? My heart is closed to Him. I think some of us need to ask ourselves a question, uh, uh, that question, right? Secondly, we glorify God my, not only by worshiping Him, but also by thanking Him. Through our thanksgiving. Remember the indictment on humanity in Romans one twenty one that we just heard? It says in Romans one twenty one that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Or give thanks. See, Christians are to be characteristically thankful people, beloved. Because God has been very good to us, hasn't He? Not only in salvation, but every single day, every single moment of the day. How often do you wake up in the morning and the first thing that you do is utter a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for giving you life and breath, for allowing you to be able to move, for allowing you to have warm water, for allowing you to have food on the table, for allowing you, kids, for the Lord to give you the gift of being able to run around and play. How often do you give thanks to God for that? See, every heartbeat is a gift of God, isn't it? You want to know the will of God for you? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness, which refers to His steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love, is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. He's faithful. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He loves you. He's good to you. Every single day, He gives you evidences of His grace through very tangible gifts that you and I don't deserve. See, people who understand the grace of God are thankful people. 
I don't know about you, but prior to God saving me, I definitely lived with just a, just a, a, a sense of discontentment at everything that I did not get. And even now, that could be a struggle for any of us in Christ, right? We live with such a great sense of discontentment. We were covetous, greedy, preoccupied with materialism. But then God redeemed us, and we moved from self-worship and idolatry in our hearts to be thankful people in light of God's goodness to us, right? Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So we glorify God by worshiping Him, by thanking Him daily, expressing gratitude. Thirdly, by obeying Him. Obedience shows our love for God and brings Him glory. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's evidence of a loving relationship to obey the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him, meaning a relation, we have a relationship with Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments or obeys Him, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. See, some people are very deceived into thinking that because they made some past profession of faith, or maybe they were emotional at one point, even in those that decision or decisions, that that saves them, or that they're saved. But there's no fruit or evidence in their lives, because they don't have a desire even to obey or to walk with the Lord, right? I, had a, I have a relative like that, I mentioned last night, made multiple professions of faith, many, uh, at least more than a couple of decades ago. Even at times was very emotional in those professions of faith. And yet, just lives a life of hatefulness towards people, self-centeredness, adultery, fornication, whether married or not married, in constant immoral relationships. And yet, if you were to tell this person, you're, you're probably not saved based upon what the fact that you don't want to obey the Lord, you don't even desire to obey the Lord. They would say that you're being judgmental. How dare you question my salvation? Who do you think you are, you goody-goody two-shoes, right? That's what this person told me. And I remember just telling this person, and I think some of us need to say this to, in love to some who profess to know the Lord, and yet they're not walking in loving obedience. It's either that you are deceived about your condition, or God, who is mighty to save, is not mighty to sanctify you. Right? He whom God saves, God sanctifies in baby steps or in big steps, right? As we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God and walk in obedience to the Word of God. Well, I think it's the former, right? I think people like that are deceived. Obedience shows the fact that we belong to the Lord and brings Him glory. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's a theological profession, your Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only those who walk in obedience. Your obedience shows the fact that Jesus is your Lord. Because Lord means master, right? You follow a master. You do what he says. And later on he says, depart from me, he's going to say to those. You who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. I didn't have an intimate relationship with you. And it showed by the very fact that you, as a response of love and gratitude, you did not walk in obedience. You didn't obey me. 
You know what's beautiful about obedience, beloved? It not only glorifies God, but it's for our good and for our benefit, right? God's commandments are not burdensome. Luke chapter 11, verse 28 says, Blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and obey it. James chapter 1, verse 25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, right? That's a synonym for the word of God, the law of liberty, and abides by it or remains under it, obeys it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man or woman will be blessed in what he does. Listen, you want to be happy? Brothers and sisters, you want to be happy non-Christian if you have not committed your life to the Lord? You want to be happy teens, young people? You want to be happy kids? You want to be a happy person, yes or no? You want a happy life? Obey the Lord. Walk in obedience to His commandments. Oh, the Lord is so gracious, isn't He? He wants to glorify Himself, but in glorifying Himself, He is also after our good. He's given His commands for our benefit. He's not an ogre. He loves us and He wants us to be happy. See? The problem is, is that we attach happiness to the wrong things, right? We don't attach our happiness to Him. He is to be the one who satisfies us completely. Amen? He is to be the one. Well, we glorify God also by our submission in suffering. Our submission in suffering. The world says fight for your rights, right? When you don't get what you want these days, let it be known, right? Freedom of speech, Americans, let it be known that you are not happy with the way that things are. Listen, you know what God calls us to? As Christians, according to 1 Peter, in the example of those believers there who were already beginning to experience the beginning of persecution that would culminate under Nero during that time, Peter calls them to be people who live excellently by submitting themselves under every human authority, even in the midst of their suffering. Submit yourselves, 1 Peter 2.13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The only exception would be if you're being forced to sin by the government, right? But we are called, according to that text, to be praying for our governing authorities, to be submitting ourselves to our government, in so long as we are not being forced to sin. Loving submission as an act of worship to the Lord. What about in the, in the workplace? First Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants are to be submissive to their masters. Even when there is injustice in the workplace? Yes, Christian. Even when there is injustice in the workplace, and you have a domineering boss who doesn't pay you your due, you are called to live well in that work environment and submit yourself to that, envir- to that, uh, that uh, boss as an act of worship to the Lord. Wives, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, wives should be, as an act of worship to the Lord, be submissive to their husbands, to arrange themselves under their husbands, even in the worst-case scenario, possibly, under an, a non-believer, in so long as he doesn't force her to sin, right? She is called to live well in that environment as well. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, as an act of worship, husbands are to show their submission to Christ by loving their wives, Living with them in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Ask yourself, even in the midst of growingly uh, difficult times here in America, a Christian in this country, 
Am I a person, a Christian, who is living well for the glory of God under the beginning signs of real suffering in this country? And I'm going to tell you, some of you youth and some of you kids, there may come a day when America will experience suffering like many other places of the world. And you will need to anchor your hope in the Lord. You will need to anchor your hope in the Lord. And it will be evident whether you really want to live a life of worship to the Lord because now there's going to be a line truly drawn on the sand. You follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted for your faith explicitly. You want to make a stand for Christ? You're going to pay a high price. There may come a day when we're going to have to show our submission in real explicit suffering. You understand that? We glorify God also by trusting Him. How easy it is to trust Him in easy times, but God wants Him to wants us to trust Him when things are hard, right? I want to share with you this last week. Um, thank you for your prayers. Um, the what keeps me out of the pulpit from time to time um, is not just some pain uh, in my stomach. What keeps me out of the pulpit is a lot of other stuff coming out. Okay, and about a decade ago. Uh, this all started in some way that I still can't explain or doctors can't explain where um, there was something that I ate in the Dominican Republic on a trip. And ever since then, for about nine or ten years, my stomach just never has been the same. Beloved, listen, during times, and I'm sure some of you have been there as well, whether it's physical or emotional or family issues or whatever you may be going through, there are times when you're just perplexed and confused and despairing in different moments. Have you been there? I have. I was there to some extent or another this past week, wondering, Lord, why? Why once again? And you know what? God revealed Himself, how God revealed Himself to me yet again. Kempis, you need to depend upon me. Somebody asked me the other day, what have you learned being the main guy in the pulpit? It's been two and a half years, not very long. But what have you learned most? I said, very easy answer. I am weak, Jesus is strong. That's it. That's it. And the Lord Lord doesn't give us an out, right? No matter what trial you're going through. He wants you to trust Him. Because you trusting Him says something, makes a statement about who you believe that He is. Conversely, when we don't trust Him, and we're worried and anxious and fearful and despairing and depressed, we act as practical atheists, right? And we're making a statement about God. Is He not faithful? Is He not reliable? Is He not trustworthy? Moreover, is He not loving and good and has kind intentions for us, even in the midst of our trials? And the answer is yes, He does. But oftentimes we don't consider it, James chapter 1, all joy when we experience various trials, right? We don't trust Him in the midst of our difficulties, beloved. So we glorify God by worshiping Him, by expressing thanks to Him, obedience, submission, and suffering, trusting Him. We, wor- we glorify God by loving others. And I want you to really allow me to zero in on this one, okay? John chapter 13, verse 34, in the aftermath of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and it is visible um, example to the disciples of how He, being Lord of all, stooped down to wash their stinky feet, Right? 
symbolic of what they had to do to one another. He says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we love others? Jesus says that it requires that we would die to self, right? Humility, humility. It says, put others first, die to yourself. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, speaking of Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Listen, it's important to God that His children love one another. You know how important it is that in the New Testament there are close to 60 one another's ways that we express tangibly love for one another. Here's a short sampling of them. You ready? We love and therefore glorify God by edifying one another, building up one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, so that we become like Jesus. We glorify God by using our gifts in the church for the building up of others. First Peter chapter 4 verses 10 through 11. We glorify God by serving one another. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. We love and thus glorify God by praying for one another. James chapter 5 verse 16. We are loving one another by admonishing one another, which includes instruction and correction in love when there's sin involved because we're after the good of our brethren. Romans chapter 15 verse 14. We glorify God and love one another by comforting one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 By contributing to one another's needs, Romans 12.13 By hospitality toward one another, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 By restoring one another when in sin. I'm going to talk about that right now. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 By bearing one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 By encouraging and motivating one another, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 By stimulating, spurring one another to to love and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 and following. By humbly looking out for one another's interests in imitation of Christ, right? Who came down from heaven to die for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. 60 plus, beloved, or maybe even more, one another's that demonstrate love in action and in the power of the Spirit that give glory to God. Love in action. And can I say this? Nowhere is, in lo- is love and action seen best than when conflict arises with one another. To be more specific, nowhere is love seen more than in the way we deal with one another when difficult times hit, when we offend one another, when we hurt one another. Listen, don't think for a moment that you can say you want to glorify God in a very genuine way and yet live, listen, in continual conflict with other people without resolving matters. And that goes for your spouse in the home, children, parents to children, children to parents, your brethren in the church, all of those contexts. Nothing puts our desire and our profession to glorify God to the test more than interpersonal conflict with other people. I still remember my mom saying to me many times when I would come and I want to start trying to strike up a conversation with her. And she knew that there was conflict with me and my sister or one of my brothers. She would say something along these lines. You and I have nothing to talk about. Go and make things right with your brother or sister. Then we can talk. 
You know what she was trying to say to me? It matters to me and to our relationship how you get along with your siblings. And you know what? In an infinitely greater way, beloved, listen to me. Our Heavenly Father, it matters to Him how we treat one another. Whether we're loving one another, forgiving one another. This is hard for us, isn't it? How do you respond when conflict happens or strikes? When someone hurts you or offends you? Do you become bitter and resentful? Maybe on the one hand, you're the person who lashes out harshly toward others or or snaps at somebody or says something short and quick that's not very edifying or loving. That could be in the home or in the church. Or maybe you're on the other hand, you're the, the person who internalizes your hurt or your offense and you simply do this. You withdraw, you become distant, you become indifferent towards others. And what's worst is that you begin to spiritualize your sinful hatred and withdrawal by saying, well, we're not called to be best friends after all. Right? You've said that, you made that statement before or thought it? I have. Let's be honest. Or you know what? I'm just going to pray for them. Right? Should we pray for people? Absolutely. But we say it and we mean it as if God is not calling you to examine yourself to see how you have wronged the other person first and foremost. As if it's just the other person who is in sin. Either extreme is equally sinful, right? And it doesn't bring glory to God. What does bring glory to God, beloved? How do we love one another in the midst of conflict in a way that glorifies God? Well, there's really only two options, right? On the one hand, you can genuinely choose to cover an offense. You can choose to do that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, uh, above all keep fervent or stre- with a stretching kind of love. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. As we grow in grace, we will be driven at times to simply believe the best and make the willing, joyful choice from the heart to overlook an offense and just simply choose to forgive somebody. Our spouse, children, in the church, somebody who we think might be an enemy. What motivates this supernatural kind of forgiveness? Isn't it the fact that you have been forgiven of infinitely much more in Christ Jesus? On the other hand, rather than resorting to sinful gossip, slander, or indifference toward people, you will deal with the issue head on. There's that great option, right? In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this to the Galatians. When someone is in sin, he says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, speaking to believers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, a blunder, crossing the line, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know what we're called to in the midst of when conflict arises or somebody has sinned against you? We are called to lovingly deal with that issue head on. What is the goal according to to Galatians chapter 6? The goal is restoration. He says, restore such a one. Restore has, it was a medical term that implied it, repairing a broken bone or or mending a fracture. It says, restore that person. It's for their good. It's so that they could be fully capable again and effective in the body of Christ. And what is to be the attitude? He says, in a spirit of gentleness, 
meekness. And then he gives a caution in Galatians 6. He says, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Don't be self-righteous when you confront somebody in love. You're vulnerable. You're susceptible to sin too. Don't think that you are not liable to fall on your face too or have already. I love what he says to you. He says, you who are spiritual. In the context, I believe he's talking about those who are yielding themselves, walking by the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in their life, which is another uh, um, caution as well, that you need to be examining yourself to make sure that you are walking by the Spirit if you are going to be confronting somebody else. See, love is never more fervent than amidst conflict resolution, right? Never more evident. We bring glory to God, beloved. By practicing love and resolving conflict in peaceful relationships. Well, if there's anything else that's not covered, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, all of life is for God's glory, right? All of life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, which pretty much covers everything else, and there are many other things, do all to the glory of God, even in the most mundane, seemingly insignificant activities. Can I give you one last one? We glorify God. If you don't, you don't know Christ this morning by committing your life to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I know that I'm not living for God's glory. I'm living for my glory, my exaltation. I'm pursuing my, the things that I want to pursue in life. It's not about God and what He wants for my life. I don't give him honor, but I give honor to myself. I'm, under one, I'm one of those people in Romans 1 who are living, suppressing the truth of God in my unrighteousness. Can I remind you that there's hope for you? There's hope because of Jesus Christ, right? The one who suffered and died and rose again on the cross for sinners, in the place of sinners, making it possible for you and I to be forgiven. By trusting in Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your sins, taking upon God's wrath, the wrath that you deserved, trusting in Him, you can be restored to a right relationship with God. You can live your life for the glory of God. And He empowers you to do it as a believer. Amen? He empowers us to do that. Look upon Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. Jesus is the one who has shown us something of the glory of God, right? He is God in human flesh. And for us who are Christians, beloved, remember that God has brought you into a living, saving relationship with Him that you and I might give Him glory, right? And the greatest way that we do that is by cherishing our Savior, treasuring Him, every single day seeking to know Him. C.S. Lewis in his famous Narnia series, the section on Prince Caspian, Describes an encounter between Lucy and Aslan. Aslan is the is the is the lion, who is a, represents uh, Jesus or the Lamb. And Lucy is lying between Aslan's front paws, looking up at him with adoration. And Aslan says, "Welcome, child." And then Lucy says to Aslan, the lion, "Aslan, you're bigger." And he responds, "That's because you are older, little one." And she says to him, "Not because you are." Aslan responds, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that, beloved, the Christian life? I would submit to us that this is what it means to grow in grace, as my brother was talking about last Sunday. 
the more that we grow in grace, the more we see the glory of God in the face of Christ and we're compelled to live for the glory of God, right? John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Soli Deo Gloria. 